Uh, we're in Genesis 45. One of the things I forgot to do this week was I was going to check in the history of uh, John, biography on John Calvin, because when John Calvin uh, went into exile, he was in a particular portion of Scripture in his preaching, and then years later, when he came back from his exile, he picked up right where he left off. I mean, he just went right back to that passage, boom, kept going, and I feel sort of like that. I'm not, I wasn't gone for years, but I was gone for a whole month, and uh, we're picking back up where we left off. Uh, most of you might remember what that is. It, been a little while, but you might remember. Uh, but I want to let you know that um, when we finish Genesis, at the end of September, in October, we're going to be moving into Colossians. And um, I'm excited about that. Um, I really think that that's the, one of the, that's the book of the Bible we need to study next. Uh, that, that really addresses, I think, um, a lot of where we are and where we need to be and what we need to remember. And um, as I was going over it in my study leave, the past couple weeks, and making notes and seeing connections, I'm just really excited about what God will teach us in the months to come as we study Colossians. But there's still some really good stuff in Genesis. So let us read Genesis 45, verses 1 through, actually I think it's 24. And I forgot my glasses this morning, so bear with me. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph! Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, the Lord of all his house, and the ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty." And now your eyes see, in the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his, on his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept on, upon them. 
After that, his brothers talked to him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and to bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provisions for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help me this morning to proclaim your testimony with simplicity. Help me to know Christ and Him crucified, so that your people might know Him more completely. Demonstrate your power through the Spirit so that our faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Is there anyone here who doesn't want glory? Who doesn't want to be significant? Who doesn't want to do something important that matters for which they may or may not be remembered forever, but to have a, to leave a, a, a positive footprint on the world? For instance, if you asked me, Steve, would you like to be a author who sells millions of books that change the lives of people, to be known as a person who shaped future generations of Christians? On board. All with that, man. We like the goal. But the path to the goal is not always something that we would choose for ourselves. For instance... If you then said to me, Steve, what is going to have to happen for that to happen? Interesting. Odd. Um, is that when you're a, a young man, when you're a kid, you're going to be, you know, a little shy and kind of keep to yourself and, and not do stuff. And when you get to <clears throat> school, what's going to happen is you're going to be bullied. And there's one day when, when you're seven years old when one of those bullies is going to chase you off the school property and a bread bus is going to run you over. It's going to be very sketchy because you're going to have a, a compound depressed fracture on the right side of your skull. There's going to be brain damage that you are going to experience. You're going to have to go through surgery, and you're going to have to have months of rehabilitation. But here's some good news, Steve. The surgeon who's going to work on you will have just returned from Vienna, where he practiced the very technique that is necessary for you to have a good life, for you to, your damage to be repaired. Who wants to go through that? I'm not sure I would have raised my hand. But that's not it. Because after that, 
you would have to wear this aluminum plate on your head because there's this two-centimeter spot, sorry, right side of your head, where there is no bone that will always be susceptible to injury. You will not be able to play the sports that you love, Steve. You're, in a sense, going to be ostracized and driven into books. It's not my life. That's the life of J.I. Packer. He wouldn't have chosen that for himself. And we don't choose the pain that we go through. But God chooses that for us, that he might give us glory. And we're going to look at part of that this morning in the life of Joseph. The big idea is that God's grace far exceeds the sin committed against or by us. But let's kind of catch up here because we're coming in the middle of the story. Okay, the quick little refresher. Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob, is despised by his brothers. And because he is exalted by his father and despised by his brothers, one day when he's checking up in them in the fields with the flocks, they decide, we can get rid of this guy and no one will ever know. And so they initially decide to kill him, but decide eventually to make money. Can't make money killing him. They decide to sell him into Egypt. And so for 20 years... Joseph is a slave who is then falsely accused and thrown into prison. And eventually he is, he tells dreams, the meaning of dreams to a few men who become important, one of whom is the cupbearer, no, yes, the cupbearer to the king, Pharaoh. And because Pharaoh has a dream, he finds out about Joseph. And finally Joseph comes and tells him the meaning of the dream and tells him, what he has to do to protect his nation in, the, in the, the midst of this famine that is to come. And Pharaoh ends up making him the most powerful man in Egypt. Because of the famine, Joseph's brothers come and he meets them, but they don't recognize him because he looks like an Egyptian. And it's been 20 years. He has been testing them up to this point to see if they're the same men that they were 20 years ago or if God has changed them in the intervening decades. And where we left off is Joseph has recognized, realized that they are different because his brother Judah owns up to that there is some great sin that God has found out about them, and he offers himself up to take the place of Benjamin to serve the penalty that Benjamin deserves. And that is where we pick this up. And the first thing I want us to know is that only Jesus frees us from the prison of the past. Judah's offer opened the floodgates in Joseph's soul. As the text says, he is overcome. Is it joy? Is it, is it sorrow? We're not exactly sure, but he, he, he has to send all of the Egyptians out because he's about to have an enormous emotional meltdown. The Egyptians, unlike the Middle Eastern people, were not prone to emotional displays. They were like the British. We were watching MI5 on vacation, and one of the phrases that came up was emotional incontinence. He's going to have a serious emotional incontinence moment right here. Okay? It's all flooding out in tears. But here's what he says. He starts off by saying, you 
sold me here. Now, Joseph is not saying this to kind of rub salt in the wounds of his brothers. He's not there to accuse them when he says this because, you know, he's just making known what Judah has already alluded to. But really, its function ultimately is to reveal that he is who he says he is because no one else would know of their sin. And so by saying, I am the one you sold into slavery, he's saying, here's my proof. I know the story. I know the guilt. I'm not just saying I'm your brother, your long-lost brother. I'm really the guy. You sold me here. He reveals this sin that only Ju- that Judah only alluded to, and his brothers are rightly terrified. Because the man that they sold into slavery is now the most powerful man in the world who holds their fate in his hands, who can crush them at any moment, send them into prison, send them to the sword. They're right to be quiet. (laughs) They're right to be afraid to keep their distance because they are guilty of selling him. But here, that's not the whole story. For it says God was at work to do something far better than what his brothers were doing. I cannot help but think of Romans 8.28. For we know that for those who love God, all thing, God works all things together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Now, we're going to talk about that this morning, but not as deeply as I want to talk about that this morning, but we'll pick it back up when we get to uh, Genesis 50 because it gets back to this very same thing. All things work together for good. It's not about the good things working together for good. They're already good. But what it's saying is that God uses all of the circumstances of our lives to accomplish His good purposes, not for everybody, but those who are called according to His purpose, and we know who they are because they love God. And so Joseph, though this hasn't been written yet, this is essentially the the framework in which Joseph is processing what has happened to him, is that God worked good through the evil that my brothers committed. Because Joseph is not getting his brothers off the hook. He's not saying that what they did was right. But what he's saying is, is that God used it for good. He says this three times. God sent me to Egypt. Okay. Now they might think, because, because we sold him into slavery, we sent him to Egypt, but Joseph wants them to know, God's really the one who sent me here. You are just the means by which he sent me here. This is not, okay, and sometimes, sometimes Christians will have a view of God's providence that is weak. And that is that God permits certain things to happen. And this is one of those texts that would argue against this. God is not permitting, the, you know, this thing to happen to Joseph and then kind of saying, Oh, what good thing can I bring about out of it? Let's see. They sent him into slavery, into Egypt. I know what I'll do. I'll make him save people from, you know, he'll have the plan to save everybody from the famine. No, 
It is a strong providence. God is sending him there. It's not an accident that he finds himself there and that God then makes good things happen out of it, but God's plan to bring good included the hardship that he experienced. A strong view of providence is what Joseph had in the midst of this. And he says that he was sent there with a purpose. Twofold. To appoint or to establish prosperity. In other words, to gather up all the surplus from the four, the seven years rather of, of, uh, bountiful harvests. So that for, in order for the second one to take place, the saving of many lives. He was sent with a purpose. Now, Joseph is meant to the original audience, the, the Hebrews who are either about to come out or have just come out of slavery in Egypt. He is meant to point to Moses initially. Because Moses was sent by God to deliver them. And now Moses, like Joseph, didn't have an easy life. Okay? He thought he was ready when he was 40 to lead the people out. He thought he was ready when he killed the Egyptian. But he wasn't. And it took 40 years of almost solitude in the desert for him to become the man that was ready to deliver Egypt because he was humble enough to finally listen to the Lord as God. Okay? But Joseph also points us to someone else who was far greater, greater than himself, greater than Moses, and that is Jesus himself, who did not just come on his own, but as Jesus often says, I was sent by my Father to save Sinners from guilt and condemnation. Jesus' life didn't look pretty. It wasn't easy, but everything was perfectly arranged so that he could fulfill the task that God had chosen for him. All three of these men had somewhat scandalous beginnings, but were used to deliver God's people at particular points in the history of redemption, and the first two point to the third one. It is Joseph's grasp of providence that helped him to look beyond the pain that he experienced to God's good purpose. It's not easy being sold into slavery. It's not easy being a slave. It's not easy being falsely accused and tossed into prison. These are not light and momentary troubles from our perspective. But Joseph here is not bitter towards his brothers. I'd be. (laughs) Most of us would be. But he's not. He's been set free from that prison of, of bitterness because he's seen that God was doing something far greater. The word that is used here that's translated honor that he has honor, okay, from Pharaoh, is, is actually the word glory, kabod, and that has to do with weightiness. When we talk about God's glory, it's weightiness. Hard for us to kind of grasp that in some sense. That, that a lot of the things that we chase after that we think are important are really light. They don't have much weight to them. They're unimportant. But God is the one who is weighty. 
And really, when, you, when we get to 2 Corinthians 4, we see this. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The reason why Paul talks about these things as light and momentary afflictions is precisely because he is looking at them with, in comparison to the weight of eternal glory. That these hardships don't last as long as that eternal glory, but also they don't have the same substance and weightiness to them as our eternal glory does. And so they, for Paul, and think of what Paul went through now. Shipwreck, the 39 um, uh, lashes, uh, being stoned and left for dead, being chased down. Paul experienced a hard, hardships that most of us could, can only imagine. We haven't experienced. Anyone been stoned recently? Okay. Uh, anyone been shipwrecked? No. Okay. I mean, these are terrifying, horrible things that he experienced. And I don't mean to make light of the of the things that you have struggled with. I'm not doing that at all. But Paul, in light of that thinking about what is to come, would call those things light and momentary. And that's exactly what Joseph was doing. They were light. They were momentary. Why is this here? I think one reason this is here is that that Israel, as they come out of Egypt, are going to be, because they've been enslaved for generations, they could not survive with the victim mentality. They could not survive with the bitterness that would be expected by anybody. That would not make for a healthy relationship with God and it would destroy them, eat them away, eat away at them. And neither can we survive if we have a victim mentality. I know some of you better than I know others of you. I know some of the horrible things that have been done to you. And the rest of you, you still have horrible things that have been done to you. Most of you anyway. Even if I don't know about them. And there have been horrible things that have been done to me. And we can often live in what I call the prison of our past. I think I stole that from Steve Brown. But I can't remember because the book it was in, I don't have anymore. And we are, we're bitter. We're fearful. I think of J.I. Packer. I'm sure that at some point between the accident and even after he became a Christian when he was a young man, he dealt with bitterness. Why did this have to happen to me? Why do I have to deal with all of this? No one likes me, man. Johnny Erickson Tata. After her, her accident that left her paralyzed, wrestled with great bitterness. And it wasn't until later when she saw it within the context of God's sovereignty that the bitterness was gone and God used her greatly to minister to people who were hurting. The only way she could ever minister to those people who were hurting in those significant ways was that she hurt first. Her ministry to the disabled is is so powerful precisely because she's disabled. 
And so sometimes God brings us through these horrible things so that we can minister to those who also experience those horrible things. The reason that Dan Allender is such a gifted counselor when working with the sexually abused is because he was sexually abused. He gets it. He knows what it's like. God wants you to see the bigger picture. And the bigger picture can only be found in Scripture. And right now you might be in the middle of that picture. And you haven't seen the good part yet. But you have to trust in the character of God as He has revealed Himself in the Scriptures That even though your suffering makes no sense right now, even though it seems overwhelming, that He actually will bring good out of it. For some of us, that is an act of faith. But Jesus can do it. He's promised to do it for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And if you're one of those people you can take that promise to the bank. So are you living in the prison of the past? Jesus calls you to arise and come forth. All right. So only Jesus frees us from the prison of the past. Secondly, only Jesus frees us from the prison of guilt. Joseph, knowing his brothers were overwhelmed with guilt, Judah just confessed it, seeks to comfort them. And that is an important part of this. Okay? They've, Judah has already owned up to their sin. And so he doesn't feel the need to bring them to a point of owning up to their sin. So he's gentle with his brothers. Okay, He's not out to punish them. He's not out to reject them. He wants them to be close to him, and he wants them to be free. He tells them, do not be distressed or angry over this grave sin. He does not want them to fall into self-pity. He does not want them to fall into self-hatred. He does not want them to live in in absolute terror of the fact that the boot will come down and crush their head, that somehow God is going to get them. Okay. He doesn't want them to live that way. He wants them to live a better way, a different way. But that, that is the way that so many people live. And that is the way that Satan wants you to live. I've started up 2 Corinthians. Paul talks about the wiles of the evil one, the schemes of the, of the enemy. And one of the schemes that he has is to keep you living in your guilt. To, to get you mad at yourself or to be filled with self-pity, self-hatred, to, to get you to live in fear that God's judgment is about to come down upon your head as if Jesus hadn't died. That's what he wants. He also tells them as he leaves, as he sends them up, you know, to go back home, do not quarrel. He does not want them playing the blame game. 
You know, he, in other words, he doesn't want Reuben to say, you know, I was going to bail him out and all you guys wanted to kill him. And, uh, hey, yeah, you, Judah, you're the one who wanted to sell him into slavery. We just wanted to kill him. You know, they, they were not to try to justify themselves, to make themselves look better or, or anything like that. And this is, again, one of the temptations that we experience when we feel guilty, is to turn the gaze away from us and to put it on somebody else, isn't it? It is not about finding fault in the matter. We often try to establish our own righteousness in the midst of this. Just the other day, talking to my kids, something had happened, and I just said, oh, by the way, for future reference, I want you to do this instead of that. What do you think just happened? Oh, I didn't do it. It was them. The finger pointing started. The, the, the defensiveness and the self-righteousness began to... And I'm like, I'm not blaming anybody. <laughs> I'm not accusing anybody. I'm correcting for a future benefit. But there is the heart, so afraid of feeling guilt, arising in self-defense. The sin... And here's the important thing as I thought about this. The sin of Jacob's sons threatened the promises of God. It did. Unfaithfulness often threatened the promises of God. Not that God won't keep his promises, but that we won't be the recipients. But what Israel needs to know, okay? Because remember, that generation that came out of Egypt, were they like, you know, holy rollers? Did they have their act all together? Were they like always obedient and faithful to God? Absolutely, positively not. They were like the exact opposite. They struggled with faithfulness. They struggled with obedience just like we do. And they needed to know, you know, that repentance restores them to God. That this is the God-ordained means for restoration in the midst of this. That all is not necessarily lost yet. Because sometimes when we fail, when we sin, we can fall into that all is lost. I'm now hopeless. There's no more grace for me. I've used up my three free sins and it's all over now. And God says, no, it's not. Because Jesus died for all your sins. Not just the first thousand. The first 5,000, or the first million, but all. That's why in Joel 2, I also read the Minor Prophets while I was away, it even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Okay, In, in Joel, things are really bad. The nation has gone off the deep end. They have committed apostasy. Okay, they're worshiping false gods in horrific ways. And yet God says, even now, when it looks the darkest and the bleakest, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Even now, if you repent, God will not bring what He has promised to bring. And sadly, they didn't. And He brought it. But back to the brothers. These 
ten brothers who sold him. They're lost in their sin, and yet God works for their deliverance through the very brother that they hated and they tried to kill. He's going to save their earthly lives through the brother that they hated, just like God saves people's eternal lives through the one that they hated and put to death upon the cross. Jesus, in a way that is far greater than Joseph, frees us from our guilt by bearing it for us. I can't help but think of Romans 5. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died. Didn't wait for us to make that moral reformation. While we were yet helpless, He died for us. While we were yet His enemies, Jesus didn't wait for the white flag to come up before He came upon the cross for sinners. He is the reason the white flag can go up. He is the proof, the demonstration of, as it says right there in in, uh, Joel, He is the proof that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, precisely because He has borne our sins as the substitute upon the cross. And therefore, we need to remember, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I listened to some uh, Matt Chandler when I was on vacation, uh, you know, walking the mile and a half up and down the road. Um, most of it looks like this. It's mostly hill. Um, and he told this one story about how he had a, a preaching engagement, and he had to drive through his hometown, the town he grew up in. And so he decided with his buddy, you know, let's stop, and, and I'll show you the sights of where I grew up. And everywhere he went, he was reminded of his sin. He would he'd drive by a house of his friend, uh, you know, a friend of his childhood, and he would remember the horrible things he did in that house. Or he'd remember the girl who used to live over there that he took advantage of. And he drove by this field, and he, he, he remembered the fight that he engaged in when he was a kid. And he said, the only chance I ever had was to cheat, and he did. And he was filled with guilt. And he had to remember that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Satan wants him to think that there is still condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he had to preach the gospel to himself from texts like Romans 8.1. We can repent because Christ's death is sufficient for our sins. And in union with Him, we are righteous in Him. God shows mercy. And as I think of my own life, I can think of many horrible things that have been done to me, but I can think of far more horrible things that I have done. And we don't need to live in the prison of guilt, just as we don't need to live in the prison of the past. Jesus frees us from the prison of guilt through His death for our sin when we repent. The third section shorter. But the third thing I wanted to draw out of this text, because it is also very important, is that we receive rich blessings only in Christ. 
One of the things that's, that I, as I look through this text, Joseph longs for his father. And you'll notice, you know, if you reread the text, he doesn't say our father. He says, my father. He was the favored son. He cherished his father. Not only did they take the son away from the father, but the father away from the son. And Joseph has spent the next, you know, spent the next 20 years wishing he could be by his father's side. And so he wants to be reunited with them, with his father. But he, he wants full reconciliation with his brother. That's the only way it's going to happen. And Jesus, Joseph's kindness toward them did not stop with forgiveness. There was more. Because he says to them, I will provide for you. He gives them the bad news. Okay, there's been two years of famine. Guess what? Five more are coming. And there's no way you're going to make it. But guess what? I will take care of you. I will take care of your children. Come. He extends hospitality to them. A hospitality that reminds me of something that, that my generation has lost, that you see t- that took place during the Great Depression, where, where multiple generations would live together because they needed one another to, to help one another through the, the, the um, you know, economic hard times. And one of the things that happens a little bit right now in the midst of the, uh, the, the prolonged economic recovery, whatever that is, um, is that sometimes multiple generations are once again putting their past behind them and reconciling and living together because they need to. And I think that is a good thing, not a bad thing. That's not bad. The God I I worship, the God I read about in Scripture, is is a God of a covenant that includes extended family. This is a good thing. Multiple generations living together after they reach the age of 18. A good thing. As long as they're not you know, perennial teenagers. Okay, this is, my, this is my little qualification. Okay, hardship sometimes requires sacrifice, and are our hearts hard to those who are in need, or are we like, you know, sort of like Joseph? Come, I'll take care of you. That's why God made me rich, powerful, to provide for you. Not only that, but He gave them wagons, He gave them provisions, He gave them a change of clothes, He got them into Goshen and ready for Goshen. I'm sure the clothes that he gave them were not like they would wear uh, in Canaan, but ones that would prepare them for life in Goshen instead. Sort of a new identity. Not only did Joseph provide for them, but Pharaoh provided for them. And he did this for Joseph's sake. So there's that covenantal aspect. They are blessed because of their connection to Joseph. That covenantal aspect is exactly what we see in Ephesians 1, 3. For the Father blessed us in the heavenly places with all things in Christ Jesus. In other words, for Jesus' sake. If we are united to Jesus, we get all those blessings. If we're not united to Jesus, we get none of those blessings. It's all about Jesus. 
but all who are covenantally connected to Him through faith, they receive all of these things that He has earned. We are blessed not because of our goodness, but we are blessed by God because of the goodness of Jesus Christ. As I was reading the text right now, you know, the beginning of the sermon, one of those things that I didn't think about that I probably should have thought about, Pharaoh says, don't worry about the things that you have in Canaan. You'll be taken care of here. Think about that for a second. What was the problem of Lot's wife? She wanted to stay in Sodom and Gomorrah. She was thinking of the things there and not of what was offered here. God calls us out of our earthly-mindedness so that we might treasure above the things of the world, the things of Christ. In other words, He offers us things that are so much better than what we already have, but in order to receive them, we have to let go of what we had over here. Think of it this way. i got two kids coming from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. What if they came in a U-Haul? Okay, of course, obviously, unless they were on a boat, not going to happen. But you know what? The stuff that I can offer them is so much better than the things they already have in the Congo. They need to let go of that to embrace that which Amy and I are going to provide for them. And that's the same, it's an analogy of what happens. We have to let go of those things we think that are so important that we can lay hold of the things that are really important. The things that Christ's, that Christ gives us. So, oh boy. Um, and so as a result, the Father and the Son heap blessings on us through the Spirit, even in difficult circumstances. I was hoping to keep that 30-minute thing going from when I left, but it didn't happen. So, um, sum this thing up. We, we all want glory. We all want blessing. But the path to them is not the one we choose for ourselves. The path runs right through hardship, often seemingly senseless hardship. It runs through sin. And if we're not careful, we can end up in the prisons of the past in a guilt. We can be angry, bitter, fearful, defensive. You don't, you can't set yourself free. Don't feel that obligation. Jesus is the one who sets us free. We must recognize his providential sovereign control over the events of our lives and the promise to work good out of even the worst things. We must repent in light of his death to bear the condemnation due our sin. And then we discover those blessings. Some here, most of them in eternity, if we are joined to Jesus by faith. And so are you, are you still living in one of those prisons? Have you been set free, but you keep going back there? You know, because that feels comfortable. And the new life of freedom in Christ doesn't feel comfortable. It's a little scary. So you keep, do you keep retreating back to those prisons of the past and of, and of guilt? There is a better way. That is the way of faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, this is not... Um, that way of faith in Jesus Christ is not something that's just, you know, for conversion moments. 
but I'm reminded of what Paul told the Colossians, that they are to continue in the way in which they received Christ. Our walk with Him begins and continues and ends with faith in Him. And I ask that you would be working by your Spirit in our hearts to reveal those places where we are still imprisoned, where we're still bitter or uh, uh, defensive, guilty and self-pity, all of these things. That we would grasp the promises of grace in Christ Jesus that we may look to Him to pull us out yet again. That we would be people who are always recognizing our need and Christ's sufficiency. And we ask this in His name. Amen.